you were here um, three weeks ago, uh, I had actually done something I'd never done before in, I don't know, 20 some years of being a pastor. <laughs> Couldn't get through a sermon. I, I, uh, I wanted to thank uh, those of you that prayed for me and our family and the Ors family. If you weren't here, uh, about three and a half weeks ago, uh, closest uh, friends of ours lost their oldest son to a tragic motorcycle accident. And, and that led to uh, about two weeks of pastoring my friends and uh, being there as their friends and community. Um, and then I had to leave right after that for family vacation. So um, and just got back last Sunday. And... Um, hearing reports and getting cards and text and email from you, church family, letting us know that we were in your thoughts and prayers meant a lot. So thank you. Thank you. As I reflected on, uh, on, on the last uh, three weeks and months, as I continue to reflect, I, uh, I'm reminded that there's nothing, there's nothing like death to make you think about life. And here's what I realize more and more about life. One is that we're just given a few years of it. Billy was 26. And Billy, like many of you, I think, is a young man who thought, you know, I'm invincible. I live forever. A lot of you have that attitude. Sometimes we forget. We're just given a few years of it. We don't. This isn't going to go on forever. And it comes to us quick. James said that we're like a mist that appears and is gone. It comes to us quick. And here's the thing. With a short amount of time, if, 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 I don't know, if there was a way that I could, you know, display eternity. Let's just say this is your life. If, if this is the life that you and I are given, do you realize that it's up to us and what we do with this time? What we do with the few years we have on earth depends on us. And Some of you have heard me say this, and I will continue to say it. Our greatest fear in life, your greatest fear is failure. That shouldn't be your greatest fear. Our greatest fear in life shouldn't be failure. Our greatest fear in life will be that we will succeed at something that at the end of the day will not matter. Do you know what it's like to get to the end of your life, look back and go, I spent my life for that? For that? We can choose to spend the few years we have uh, for ourselves, which leads to oftentimes, let's just be honest, a life for ourselves, despair and emptiness. So we can choose to spend that time living for others, which Jesus said will lead to fullness and joy. Church, here's what I'm realizing. And I know I sound like an old fart. I'm only 45. But here's what I'm realizing. I'm realizing that the real measure of our lives will not be all the things that we obtain, the goals that we achieve, or all the success that we acquire. Real success will be relationships you've built, the lives you've touched, the people you've loved, and people that love you. I know that sounds crazy to some of you right now. That's just going 
I'm driven by success, my goal, corporate ladder. I'm telling you, I've yet to meet somebody who on their deathbed said, I wish I spent more time at work. But I've met plenty of people who said, I wish I spent more time with my kids. I wish I spent more time with my spouse. And the Bible describes an event in the life of Jesus that accentuates the importance of committing our lives to investing in other people. Let me show you. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered there that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they, the friends, made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, he lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. And when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytics, Son, your sins are forgiven. And I just want to ask you this question today. Who will carry you? Do you have friends that you value so highly because of the investment that you've made in their lives that they will not leave you behind? If you were paralyzed, If what you needed to do, you couldn't accomplish alone. Do you have friends in your life, at least four people, who care enough about you that they'll say, I'm not leaving you back? As you pursue your dreams and your goals, do you have people in your life, the kinds of friends that if these people were not with you, regardless of the outcome, that endeavor would not be considered a success. Can you turn to some people today, today, right now, come on, be honest, and by the way, this doesn't include your spouse. Can you turn to some people right now and say, you, 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 and you, even if I have to pick up your mat and carry you, I will not go any further on this journey without you. Church, the people that you invest in today are the very same people who will be invested in you tomorrow. And if you live today as if you don't need anybody, you actually get to prove it later. Are you taking time to invest in the people who are in your life? Man, slow down if you have to and journey with them. An African proverb says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. It's better to adjust your pace than to walk alone. Maybe a life well lived isn't about who walks the fastest. Maybe a life well lived is about who has the most people walking with them on their journey. So I ask you again. Who will carry you? And maybe it's just appearance, but it's at times like this I look out, and whenever I see people sitting by themselves or with just one other people, (laughs) my heart aches. Again, maybe just appearance, but I'm going, why are they sitting alone today? Why are they sitting alone today? 
Today we're beginning a new sermon series called Better Together, Pursuing Biblical Community. And today we're just going to ask a simple question. What is community? And as we always do at the very beginning, I'm just going to lay some basic foundations. Not all questions will be answered. You will find yourself at some points going, you need to say more about that. That's the whole point of an introduction. So we turn to Acts 2, a very familiar passage. There's so much here, we could spend eight weeks just on these verses. But I'm just going to, again, draw some basic, big foundational principles. Some of these themes will be old news to you. Some of these themes will be new. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. They were together. They were together in everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This short section, of course, those of you know, describes the early church and how it lived its life corporately. But I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss this. Please look up here. These character attributes that we find in Acts 2 about the early church are not just traits to aspire to. They're not just traits we aspire to. They're not just traits to go, they did that, they did that, they did that, and we should do that. This in Acts 2 is a picture of what becomes of the church when the Holy Spirit is at work. These are not attributes. Listen, they just read and go, we should do that, we should do that, we should do that. This is what inevitably becomes of a group of people when the Holy Spirit is at work. Remember what preceded this in Acts 1. The disciples pray in the upper room for the coming gift that Jesus promised. Acts 2, the Spirit is poured out on the disciples. Peter preaches the gospel message and immediately they come together and these are the attributes that you see. The gospel and an encounter with Jesus, the Bible says, doesn't just take you deeper into the heart of God. The gospel and an encounter of the Holy Spirit takes you deeper into community. Did you hear me, church? A sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in this body is that when you encounter the gospel and the Holy Spirit is at work, which you talked about for eight weeks, it doesn't just take you deeper into intimacy with God. It takes you deeper into intimacy with other people. The fact that you are in authentic, real community with others is a sign that there is spiritual life. Today during dedication, you notice babies, you don't have to tell them to cry. They cry. Why? It's a sign that they're alive. You don't have to take a group of people who are spiritually alive and tell them to come together. They come together as a result of the Spirit being at work. They come together as a result of the Spirit being at work. You cannot be spiritually mature and live your life with an attitude that says, I don't need anybody. That's a sure tail sign that you do not know the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit is at work, it doesn't just take you deeper into God. It 
pushes you into other people. So church, here's the question. The early church's description, you notice verse 44, it said they were together. They were together. In other words, being together wasn't just something they did. It described the state of their being. Uh, when two people are dating, you go, are they together? Yeah, they're together. What are we saying? When we say they're, they're together, are we just saying that they just spend time together, they go on dates? And when we say, no, they're together, it signifies intimacy, oneness, togetherness. My question to us for the next several weeks is, are we just showing up for meetings or are we letting our whole lives come in contact with whole lives of other Christians that the only way when people think a new community, the way they describe it is, oh yeah, they're, they're, they're together. They're together. They're together. How are you doing? How am I doing? When the Spirit is at work, it doesn't just take, to the extent, to the degree that the Spirit is at work, the extent to which you are entering in to deep. Now, of course, this brings up all kinds of questions like, well, why am I not in community? What's wrong with me? These are the concerns. We'll get to that. We'll get to all of that. But I need you to sit with this. And wrestle with this truth. If today you can't look around and go, you, 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 and you, I know for sure, for sure, for sure, you will carry me. To take me to where I need to go. Four foundational truths about what community is, and then we're done. One, community isn't created, it's discovered. Community isn't dis- created. It's just, this is counterintuitive, but let me just say a word about this. Uh, there are, inevitably, this is new community, which means that there are folks who go, I'm not a Christian. Actually, I don't know what quite I believe. And there are people who say, I think I'm a Christian. But every time you preach stuff like that, I don't know if I'm really a Christian. So I want to lay a groundwork that maybe all of us could come together on when we talk about community, just to let you know that this isn't just a churchy thing or a Christian thing. The word community, does somebody know? The word community literally comes from the word common. Community comes from the word common or to be shared by all. We'll look at this next week. Genesis begins with human beings. Human beings created in the likeness of God. So here's what every human being on planet earth and I have in common. We're all created in the image of God and we have inherent worth and value. We all have that in common. Here's another thing we have in common. Every human being on earth and I have been created for a life of mission, purpose, significance. And we all desperately want our lives to matter. We have that in common. We all want to make a difference in this world in a meaningful way. We all have that in common. I could list a thousand different things when every sing- with every single person on planet Earth and I have in common. Just, just, just from the fact that we're created in the likeness of God. Some of you may know. I still, from, I'll never forget it. Watching television 
with what initially was initially a small group of people that began this church. There was like 15 of us with our jaws dropped as we saw plane after plane going to the World Trade Center. We were about three months from launching our church and there's a group of people that have been doing life together. And there were two people in our group whose family relatives passed away because they were firefighters. It's etched in our minds, 9-11. But do you remember what happened after 9-11? Does anybody remember? You had all these strangers coming from different walks of life together, chipping in. I'll never forget it. Strangers walking up to firefighters, offering food. Strangers stopping in the middle of the street, hugging, weeping, other total strangers. Strangers walking up and saying, can I pray for you? Total strangers after 9-11, what? Coming together to comfort, to pray. People from different walks of life, regardless of race, ethnicity, culture, beliefs, socioeconomic background. Yeah, these people coming together. And there was this enormous natural, even global sense that we're all in this together. Catch this. It's not that on September 12th, community was created. September 12th, community was discovered. As people all realized, I have that in common with you. 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 One of the most powerful quotes from me, one of my favorite authors, Henry Nouwen. Anybody read Henry Nouwen? Read his books, any and all of his books. Henry Nouwen says something powerful about compassion. By the way, in our divisive, rhetoric, political, yucky climate, I was reminded of his quote, on compassion, and this is so powerful for me. Henry Nouwen says, compassion manifests itself in solidarity. The deep consciousness of being a part of humanity, the essential awareness of the oneness of the human race, the intimate knowledge that all people, however separated by time and space, are bound together by the same human condition. You see what he's saying? He's saying compassion happens when you and I come to realize we have so much in common. We have so much in common. And by the way, the flip side is true too. Do you know why our culture is so vitriolic, so hateful, so just unjust, so hate-filled? It becomes easy to be indifferent, hate-filled, and unjust when you look at a group of people and go, you are nothing like me. You are the other. When you look at a group of people Race, ethnicity, culture, second class. And you go, you are nothing like me. The other, it's inevitable for the human heart to go, I don't care about you. Henry Nouwen. You know what this means? This means that I want to remind all of us this morning that even with people who have very different value system, belief system, we can experience deep community with them. Why? And I'm going to hammer away at this next week. Longing for community, longing for community is not a Christian thing. It's a human being thing. It's a human being issue. 
Longing for community is what it means to be human. You can't be fully human alone. A longing for community is what makes us human. And we'll see that next week. Community is what makes us human. We don't create it. We discover it as we realize just how much we all have in common. And by the way, for those of you that are not Christian, here's why I think you should be a Christian. You ready? Because for those of us who follow Jesus, there is a powerful solidarity that goes beyond common solidarity that we share with all of humanity. What do I mean? And the thing that our culture just doesn't get about friendships, and I'm not talking about drinking buddies. I know about friendships that are deep, friendships like the one that we saw in Mark 2. The essence of those kinds of friendships is not that we look at each other, but we look at something else that we have in common. What makes us friends is not going up to somebody and going, do you love me? I love you. What makes us friends is we look at each other and go, do you love the same truth? See, friendship can't be made out of nothing. Friendship has to be made out of something more powerful than just, I love you, you love me. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, I was going to fake a British accent and read this to you because I think it would be more powerful, but I can't. So I'm just going to read this for you. Just imagine this, this, this guy saying this. He says, that's why those pathetic people who simply want friends could never have any. The very condition for having friends is that we should want something besides friends. If someone asks you, do you see the same truth? And the honest answer is, I don't care about that. I just want you to be my friend. Then no real friendship could arise. There will be nothing that the friendship would be about. Those that want nothing share nothing. Those that want nothing could have no fellow travelers. He's saying deep friendships can't just be made out of nothing. Deep friendships has to have some common passion. These kinds of friendships happen when two people just don't go, do you love me? I love you, but do you love the same truth? And the Christian faith gives you a compelling, life-transforming, common passion. And his name is Jesus. Do you know how powerful that is? I'll show you how powerful that is. Look around this room. What gathers us together is not our race, ethnicity, culture. If that was the case, we would all look exactly alike. What gathers us is not age, that we would be all other. Though what gathers us is not fashion sense, music. What gathers us is that we, you, me, are no longer kneeling at the altar of beauty, at the altar of money, at the altar of fashion sense, at the altar of power, at the altar of our even race, ethnicity. To give us identity and meaning. Every single one of us in this room, we're kneeling at the altar of Jesus and we call him king. And when you are kneeling at the altar of the king and you look around, you realize there are other brothers and sisters who are nothing like you kneeling at the same time at the altar of king. You discover just how much you have in common. Do you get that? Do you understand that? Now, here's a real challenging question. You ready? That means if we're all kneeling at the altar, if we've experienced grace in Jesus, that means that there has to be growing a list of people who are nothing like you racially, culturally, socioeconomically, educationally. 
That's a sign and a test that you've encountered grace. So can I ask you a question? Is the four people that I consider, are there four people, as you look at them, do they look exactly like you? Or do they look like the kingdom and the actual body of Christ? Community. Community. Community isn't created. It's discovered. Now, secondly, I don't want to mess you up, but here's the point. Community isn't discovered. It's created, okay? Y'all bright people in new community. Hold those two in tension, okay? What do I mean? You can't miss it. Acts chapter 2, it says that every single day they met together. Can I ask you an honest question? Your community, the thought of getting together with them every single day, does it excite you or does it freak you out a little bit? Anybody? See, what the early church got, that we in a very individualistic, Western, consumeristic, in none of your business culture that we live and breathe in, is that you cannot live into the Christian life apart from community. There is no, I've got a decent relationship with Jesus and I don't need you all. That's not Christianity. You've made up your own religion. That's not Christianity. Did you know that 80% of the New Testament is written in the plural? 80% of the New Testament's ethical exhortation and commands are not written to individuals. They're written to groups of people. If you read the New Testament in southern language, it's not you, it's y'all. And here's what you find in the New Testament. Here's what you find in the New Testament. Some of you may know this. Let me show you what we commonly refer to as what? One another passages, right? Let me just show you some of them. I read really fast, so this is going to take like 30 seconds. Love one another, serve one another, accept one another, strengthen one another, help one another, encourage one another, care for one another, forgive one another, submit to one another, commit to one another, build trust with one another, devoted to one another, be patient with one another, be interested in one another, be accountable to one another, confess to one another, live in harmony with one another, do not be conceited to one another, do not slander one another, instruct one another, admonish one another, spur one another towards love and good deeds, meet with one another, be concerned for one another, be humble to one another, be compassionate to one another, do not lie to one another, give preference to one another, be at peace with one another, sing to one another, comfort one another, be kind to one another, live at peace with one another, carry one another's burdens. Okay, there you go. I, I told you I read fast, but y'all knew that I talk fast. Question, how many of these can you do on a Sunday morning or an hour and a half? How many have you done? In the last hour and 10 minutes you've been sitting here. Oh, you've listened. Hopefully, it's been helpful information. Hopefully. You've sung a few songs. You watched a cute dedication. How many of these, core of what it means to be a Christian follower of Jesus in the New Testament, can you do these things on a Sunday morning in a span of an hour and a half? See, this is why to me, it's disturbing when somebody says, oh, I go to a new community. And they attend once in a while. Because what they really mean is, I come to worship, sing songs, listen to a sermon, go home, and I never have life-on-life contact with anybody. And when you do that, you are distorting the language of church. The church is that body, that group of people that you are 
crying with, laughing with, carrying one another's burdens. The church is a group of people that you sit around and go, I'm hungry, will you feed me? The church is a group of people where you open up and go, I need you to come inside, get to know me, the real me. Are we the church? Or is this church a group of people come to a worship event and go home? Are we the church? And this isn't about me just having you come to meetings. It's the New Testament of what it means to be a follower of Jesus until every single one of us in this room has a circle of people that we're doing all of that with. It's not the church. It's not the church that Jesus envisioned that he died and rose again for. It's what our culture says is church. It's not the church of the New Testament. New community. Do we not want to be the church that Jesus envisioned? Amen? Then the question is asked this morning. Can you look at a group of people right now and go, with you, with you, with you, with you, will you carry me? Because I'll carry you. Can you do that this morning? This is the reason why I told Kaylin, I, I'm like, I don't know, Kaylin, about this launching of small groups. Do you know why? Because the vast majority of small groups in America are a group of people who get together once a week for two hours, never go deep, never share, never get vulnerable. In the name of Jesus, act like everything is fine. That's not real biblical community. That's not. The real biblical community is one in which you're going, I am fully known. And I'm fully accepted. And you are fully known. And fully accepted. Are you taking off your mask and sharing what's really going on? Because if you're not, we're just like any other church. That's just getting together in the name of Jesus. Never taking off their masks and getting real. And can I just, is it, is it fulfilling to be with a group of people who never get real and never share? Is it fulfilling? Answer? No. And yet we continue to do it. Third, community is needed. There's some of us in here right now. I, I know who you are because I can see you saying, I don't need community. I don't, I, don't, I don't need it. And you're not saying that consciously. Well, some of you are saying that consciously. Like I've literally heard people say to me, I don't need community, Pastor Peter. Here's what eventually they say. One of three things. One, people are constantly moving away. And I'm tired of building relationships to say goodbye two years later. I'm tired of that. I understand. Secondly, Married couples with kids. <laughs> it's so hard. No kidding. It takes a lot of work. No kidding. Of course it's hard. Of course it takes a lot of work. It gets harder with different stages in life. Here's a third. And this is really hard. Do you ever have the experience of someone you trust letting you down? I have. 
And what happens when people who trust let us down as a defense mechanism, we go, I'm never going to trust again, never going to open up again. And it's almost like we get to a point where we convince ourselves we just don't need people. If that's you today, I don't know who I'm talking to, but if that's you today, if you're sitting there going, I don't need people, please don't. If vulnerability is hard, you know what's harder? Invulnerability. Do you know why? Because it hardens your heart. It hardens your heart. The other reason why you need community is because regardless of what our culture says, you and I are not a product of individual choices that we've made in life. Listen carefully, please. Please listen. Our culture says who you are is made up of decisions you make in life. It's about you and what you do. The Bible says, no, it's relationships in your life that's hurt you. It's relationships. It's your mom. It's your dad. It's your parents. It's your boyfriend, girlfriend. It's your pastor. It's, it's relationships and community that's hurt you. Here's what the Bible says. If community is what hurts you, community is what will heal you. You can't go, these relationships have messed me up, but I'm going to work on myself, by myself, and get better. The Bible says, community is what hurts you. Community is what will heal you. Just as food nourishes the body, so does community to the soul. See, the thing that I realized Four weeks ago, when my closest friends lost their son, listen, if you don't have built-in community and you actually need it, it's too late. Did you hear what I said? Nobody here, you've heard me say, walks around going, I love air. Air, air is so good. Air is such a precious commodity. Do you know when you really appreciate air and breathe? When you're underwater. When you can't breathe. Do you know when you really, really need community is when you're emotionally under. But if when you're emotionally under, you don't have built-in community around you and you are scrambling going, I need people, it's too late. I'll never forget driving up to my friend's house, the day that I heard the news. There were neighbors, people that lived from miles away that just flocked to that home. It was so beautiful. Within moments of getting the news, it was so beautiful to see the kind of community that they had built into their lives that at the greatest time of need, they were right there. Let me ask you something. If and when you go emotionally under, do you have people who will be there? If you're sitting there going, that sounds good, Peter, but I'm still afraid. I'm still afraid of getting hurt. The whole fear thing makes the whole vulnerability thing really hard, which makes the whole trust thing really hard. 
But I'm going to push you for the next two minutes. You ready? True community is impossible without vulnerability, which means that true community is not possible unless we're willing to put ourselves out there, risk getting hurt, risk getting rejected, and risk being let down. And if you're sitting there going, well, who would be stupid and dumb enough to put themselves out there to get risk getting hurt, risk getting rejected, risk getting abandoned in times of need? Well, for starters, how about Jesus? Well, for starters, how about Jesus? You ever read the Gospels lately? Jesus is constantly putting himself out there. To who? Do you remember? People who are constantly misunderstanding him, constantly misunderstanding him, constantly letting him down, falling asleep at his greatest hour of need. And oh, by the way, as he's being crucified on the cross, they say, we don't know him. And yet over and over and over again, we see him putting himself out there, risk getting hurt, opening himself in vulnerability over and over again. Could it be that you and I cannot be more like Jesus unless we want friends in a community like this? And let me push you even further and say this. Maybe, maybe, maybe the way that we embody Jesus, we talk about, I want the world to get to know Jesus. Maybe the way that we embody Jesus is that when you become a Christian, not everything will go well. We all get along perfectly. No, 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 no. When you become a Christian, things get really hard. Relationships get hard. We hurt, we offend. We do all kinds of things to disappoint each other but in the Christian community because we've been shaped by the gospel we don't cut each other off but we forgive we stay in it and we work towards reconciliation rather than saying I no longer want to be around you because if at the heart of the gospel is a God who says even though you constantly disappoint me even though we constantly reject him he doesn't cut us off but says I will not forsake you nor leave you maybe maybe what the watching world needs to see in our culture today is the group of people and oh by the way and I'm going to get to this in this church because you're around people that are nothing like you if you are not offending somebody you're not going deep enough if you're not disappointing somebody you're not going deep enough Maybe the power of the gospel lies in the fact that we don't shy away from difficulties, but we enter in. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we forgive, we reconcile, and we pick ourselves up. Church, can I get an amen? <sighs> Lastly, community. Not only is it needed, but it gives life. People in the early church met with glad and sincere hearts. I love that. Do you know what sincere literally means? It means free of deceit, falseness, hypocrisy, or pretense. You know what this is? This is the kind of church where people could come just as they are, and they didn't have to pretend to be better than they actually were. Do you ever... Have you ever been in an environment of someone who knows everything about you, even the ugly, nasty stuff, and yet you know, you know, you know that that person loves you unconditionally and is committed to you? Don't you find your soul coming alive? Vice versa? 
Have you ever been in an environment where you feel like you have to pretend all the time? Isn't that exhausting? Isn't that exhausting? Of course it is. Have you been on first dates? Of course it's exhausting to pretend. The reason why they were glad was because they were around other people who were sincere. This is a church where people said, I come as I am. I don't have to pretend to be better than I actually am. I come just as I am. And in that environment of transparency, honesty, authenticity, and vulnerability, people came alive. I may not know you, my brother and my sister today. I may not know you personally, but I know this about you. You long to be loved. You long to be loved. But if you want God or anyone else, for that matter, to love the real you, you have to work at getting real. See, here's the thing you need to know. I could only be loved, listen, to the extent that I am known. If you don't know the whole me, you could tell me, I love you, Peter. But deep down inside, here's what I'm thinking. You would not love me if you knew all there was to me. So you telling me that you love me will not transform me. I could only be loved to the extent that I am known. I could only receive love from you to the extent that I am known by you. When I am fully known and fully loved, my soul comes alive. Your soul comes alive. This is the reason why James says, confess your sins to each other and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And we love going right to the pray for one another so you may be healed. The first part is confess your sins to each other. Why? Here's what I've seen for 20 years of ministry. Sin and isolation will not only make people physically sick, but they're soul sick. That's why if you are struggling with some sin right now, you're hearing a loud voice inside your head that says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Why? Because you're struggling with that alone. And furthermore, if you tell somebody, they're going to reject you. They're going to ridicule you. They're going to think you're the worst Christian in the world. So don't tell anybody. If you're hearing that voice, that voice is from the pit of hell. It's not from Jesus. Sin and isolation are the two things that the enemy uses to say, I got you exactly what I want you. That's why the Bible says when you're struggling with sin and you confess that to God and to each other, there's healing. Why? You're no longer in secrecy. That's scary, isn't it? But it's the only route to true authentic community. Can new community be a place where we can be real? We can be sincere. See, see, before I preached today, I was listening to a song, Just as I am with one. That song speaks of us coming to God without having to pretend. What if we did that for each other? What if we were able to come to each other without pretending just as I am? What if? Let me leave you with four questions and then we're done. One, am I willing to acknowledge my need? Confession, I hate, I hate, I hate telling people my needs. Confession, do you know why? 
Because inside, my deep insecurity says, I would rather not tell you what I need than tell you what I need and have you disappoint me. Three people went like that to me right now. I already know who you are. If you are sitting there going, I'd rather not tell somebody because I'd rather tell somebody. First of all, that's so arrogant. I'm I'm just preaching to me. It's so arrogant. It's so arrogant to think, I don't need anybody. Why? Because God forbid, how would you possibly meet my needs? Good Lord. Do you see how that sounds? Are you willing to acknowledge your need? And by the way, in a group like this, everybody's looking around going, I ain't going to go first. I'm not going to go first. Who's going to go first? Somebody, oh, yes, after the first brave, courageous soul. If you're in a community of people where nobody, nobody, nobody has gone there, are you willing to be the first one? Second question, am I willing to create space for it? We'll come back to these themes over and over again. What do I mean? What decisions do you need to make about time? I don't want to hear. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just frustrated with it. I don't want to hear anymore. Somebody coming and going, I don't have community. I love for community. This church, and I go, show me your calendar. Here. You have no time. Your calendar is full of things for you. You can't have it both ways. Can I get it? Amen. You can't go, I want community. I don't get it. And never create time emotionally, physically for it. What about space literally? Inviting people into our homes for meals. Inviting people into our apartments for meals. We're allowing people to stay for a bit if they need it. We have constantly people who need short-term residency. Are you willing to be that person that says, I have an extra room, come stay with me. What about space with resources? Every meal that you buy for yourself, what about inviting someone with? Every meal you're hosting at your house and you eat, inviting someone with. Are you creating space for a third? Am I willing to enter into discomfort for it? What do I mean? Please understand how steeped an individualistic, consumeristic mindset we are in. That means that not being self-centered, not being self-absorbed with our time, with our emotions, with our homes, and with our money. Listen, it will feel uncomfortable. I'm telling you, true community, it will feel, if it doesn't feel uncomfortable, you might not be doing it. It will feel uncomfortable. Why? Because patiently, putting yourself out there, patiently, intentionally, building relationships, especially with people who are nothing like you, will feel incredibly uncomfortable. Why? Because those relationships take a lot of time, and you don't like to wait for anything in your life. You and I don't like to wait for anything in our lives. So when relationships get a little bit hard, I'm done. This will feel uncomfortable because you don't like to wait. I preach to myself. I don't like to wait for my burgers or anything else in my life. It will feel uncomfortable. You will feel uncomfortable having your tidy 
well-planned schedules disrupted by somebody who is in need. Why? Because it will shatter your illusion that somehow you are in control of your life. You are not. And the best way to shatter that illusion is to give people permission. Anytime, drop by when you're in need. Being in community will feel uncomfortable because (laughs) dying to myself feels uncomfortable. But that's the call of Jesus. The call of discipleship is if we are to follow him, it's a call to death, death to ourselves. But Jesus said that that's the only way to life. Jesus said that if you want to live, you need to die. And when you die to one life, you realize you actually gain a life much better than the one you lost in the first place. And lastly, am I willing to observe? You know who gives me life? You know who gives you life? People that notice us. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? You know who gives me life? People who notice what my fears are, what my loves are. Do you notice that? Do you know what? Do you know what brings us life? It's people who notice that I'm hurting even when I don't realize that I'm hurting. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I can't tell you as a pastor how often I have been enormously encouraged. You don't even know you're doing this to me, but enormously encouraged. When somebody just comes and goes, hey, Peter, you doing okay? That's all. And usually my response is, yeah, yeah, I'm okay, I'm okay. I've got the mask on, right? Just like you. I can't tell you, though. I walk away from that three seconds. Sometimes my eyes will tear up, by the way, after this. Don't come up to me and ask me how I'm doing. I can't, I can't tell you how often my eyes will tear up. Why? Because I was noticed. Somebody observed. Can I tell you something else, ironically? Do you know that your own soul flourishes when you actually notice others, do you know why? Because you're actually, to notice others, you have to forget about yourself and your self-absorption. And in our self-forgetfulness, our soul flourishes. So maybe this is the most simple and yet most difficult. Are you willing to observe And observing means you, you not, you notice, you know, you don't come into church and go, sitting, nobody looking. No, look up. And you may finally come to realize that in your self-forgetfulness, your soul will flourish. This benediction is a benediction that we will come to again and again. And I'm just going to read it once And have you just listen to what this says. Because we're going to end every service in this sermon series with this. We believe that we were created to live deeply with one another. To carry each other's burdens. And to share our possessions. And to pray for and confess our sins to each other. And to suffer and celebrate together. It's in these sacred relationships and honest, loving communities. That God can transform us. The way of Jesus cannot be lived alone. Maybe that's... What actually I was supposed Are you willing to observe? Are you willing to observe? Can you just... 
My son Parker, 10, has a brother who's five. And Parker's favorite saying these days to Noah, it's not about you, Noah. <laughs> Noah's whining. Parker like, it's not about you, Noah. <laughs> He'll throw a fit. It's not about you, Noah. And I'm sitting there going, amen, it's not about you. What if this church lived into that and said, it's not about me? See, see, going up. Um, I need to end quickly because we have a members meeting. So I'm going to share and then I'm going to pray for offering and we're going to collect offering. Listen, when I was gone on vacation, I shouldn't have checked my emails, but I had to because of the subject headline. Another person in our church was diagnosed with cancer. Amy Bridgman, wife of Brian Bridgman. They have a two-year-old girl. She's been in the hospital in Northwestern for 10 days. They still can't figure out what kind of cancer she has. It's driving me crazy. Do you know why I share that with you? And I saw Brian this morning. I called him. I said, how are you doing? And we got a chance to talk. Do you know why I share this with you? Because this gave me a glimpse of what our church is at its best. When the news broke, an email went out to 40 people. <laughs> Staff, prayer team, people they were in community with. And within minutes, the church, you guys came together, setting up meals, going to visit her at the hospital, calling for people to contribute financially, for pay for babysitting. I, it, it was the most amazing. I look at that and I go, we can do it, God. We can do it. It's possible. We can do it. But I am full aware that that's happening in pockets, not as a whole. And I'm going to tell you right now, the only reason why we responded like that is because Amy and Brian have made themselves known. They've lived for the last 10 years of this church observing others, serving others, noticing others. And when they're in need, our church family, so beautiful, came together. Brian's here today. And he said, I asked him, do you mind if we pray for you after the service? He said, yeah, Pastor Peter, that'll be fine. After the service right here, whoever wants to. And if you're a member, come up quickly so you can pray for Brian. You go to the meeting. Right after the service, we're going to be right there to pray for Amy and Brian. And their precious little one. <sighs> Father, we, we're excited but also scared for this journey. Even though we know in our heart of hearts that there is no life apart from community, even though we know in our heart of hearts that there is no life apart from community in each other. It's so hard because we've been wounded. We've been hurt. We've been let down. We have had our trust shattered, and it is so difficult. But, oh God, by the power of your Spirit who fills us enables us to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus. Will you help those of us that are so scared, so afraid to step in, to step out and to step in? 
to acknowledge our need, to enter into discomfort, to die to ourselves, and to to open our eyes and observe. Oh, Jesus. May we, can we be that church? Holy Spirit, will you speak to anyone and everyone out there who is resistant, who is hard-hearted, soften their hearts. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be And Father, we give our tithes and our offering to you. (laughs) We're so enormously grateful for the gift of your son and the gift of this church community. We need you desperately. And as we give, we are acknowledging, God, that you supply and provide for every one of our needs, every one of our needs, that we couldn't live apart from your provision. So we give. Use this to advance your kingdom purposes here in this city and all over the world for the sake of your glory for the sake of your glory.